I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, if you've not already done so, and turn with me, please, to the very last verse of Jonah chapter 1, the last verse of Jonah chapter 1. And if this is your first time with us, we are in the third study of the book of Jonah. And you probably are familiar with the story. If the cartoon character on the screen didn't remind you of it, then uh, you probably remembered it from when you were a child. Uh, the title of this morning's sermon, I thought about calling it the top three things to do when stuck inside a great fish. But I settled for the diary of a drowning man and how appropriate today that we talk about drowning with all the water outside. And uh, I'm grateful that you have braved the elements to come and be a part of God's uh, worship and the study of his word today. The diary of a drowning soul. I'm reading from verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Pray with me. Father, as we open up your book and we look at your words, we need you to teach us today. And so we invite you here. And through your spirit to take this truth and apply it not just to our minds, but to our hearts. And for the one that finds himself or herself in a place where they would classify themselves as a runner, running from God, I pray today they would find such beauty in you, in the truth about you, that they would stop today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about as we've looked at our study is whether or not Jonah is based on the story of a real man or whether it's just a story. And of course, scholars through the centuries have sort of argued about it and made their case. But I think the fact of Jonah, the history of Jonah, we treat it as history because Jesus did. Jesus considered Jonah to be a real person and spoke of him that way. If you want to look at it sometime, you can look in Matthew 12. But Jesus described how just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the earth for three days and three nights. And so he treated this as history and not as a mere story. A couple things I would call attention to as we dive into this passage, and we're really going to be focused on chapter 2 today, but if you know someone who is running from God, this should encourage you. Someone you know that you're praying for, someone that you love, and they have, for whatever reason, they have turned their back on everything that they have, were taught or that they knew, or if you're a parent, you're, you're, you're hurting because of a son or a daughter who's running or if you have a close friend, you grew up together, and you see that they're running, what better truth can you focus on as you pray than this, that God pursues runners? God pursues runners. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. He knows what they're doing, and he knows how to bring them back to himself. God goes after runners. Don't quit. God's not quitting. Don't quit praying for them. If you're a runner today, I want you to see the story of a man 
who comes to a place in his life where he quits running. And Jonah, in this chapter, comes and he stops. He stops running. And, and yet there are some problems. He stops running on the outside, but that's not the whole story. And he immediately turns to God. He's talking to God, but he's not listening to God. And we'll see this as we dig into his diary, his record of what happened in those moments inside the fish. Well, what should he have done? And what should you do if you're running and you're deciding to stop today? When you decide to stop running from God, you need to, first of all, rethink God. Rethink God, who he is. What have you been thinking about him? Well, obviously, that needs to change if you've been running from him. So, chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah has been swallowed up. He's in the belly of this fish, and it says in verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. The irony of this is that Jonah never prayed when God gave him direction to go to Nineveh. And when the storm hit the ship where he and the soldiers were on it, he never prayed during the storm. But now he is praying, and boy is he praying. If you look at this uh, passage in chapter 2, he says, I cried out to the Lord. What he's recording is, he's now in the belly of the fish, and he says, I cried out to the Lord. Not at that moment, but before he was swallowed. He's describing a moment when he was drowning, when he was hitting rock bottom, when he was at the end of his rope. He had nowhere else to turn. He says, I cried out to the Lord. And in the, in, in the reference says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. This is a near-death experience for him. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. The word there in the Hebrew is screamed. And so he's underwater, he's drowning. He doesn't think he's going to survive. Sheol is a, is a way of describing death in the Old Testament. And can I just say that if you're running this morning, don't wait that long. Don't wait that long. Don't wait till you're at the very end and you have nothing else left to fight God with. In the Bible, people change primarily for two reasons. Over and over again, the Scripture holds before you and me a desirable future. That this is the reason I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, he holds before us life. In John 3.16, we tend to emphasize the, the perishing part, but he emphasizes that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And so he puts before you and me a desirable future that, that there is a real life, and it is life that we want. It's life that you and I are missing. It's life that we need. There's another reason people change, not just hope for a desirable future, but we also change because it hurts so bad I got to. And in this case, Jonah is changing at this moment because of that. He hurts so bad, he's got to. He's about to drown, and then he cries out. And God rescues him with the fish, and he writes all about that. But what we discover is that although the water was deep, the man was shallow. It never occurs to him that there's something wrong with crying out to God to do something for him, but ignoring the fact when God calls on him to do something for God. It never occurs to him there's something wrong with believing that God should rescue you. But God shouldn't send you 
to carry a message to rescue someone else. We would say, Jonah, your God is too small. And as a runner, and at one time or another, you and I all run. But runners don't want to deal with God as he is. They want to treat God like a, a deli. I'll take a God who does what I want, but go light on the commandments, please. They want to use God, but they don't want to obey God. In contrast to this, when you come to the New Testament, the very first message and the primary message that Jesus preached was this. Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Repent means to change your mind, to turn around, and, and to turn to God at the deepest level of who you are. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. You're not in charge. There's another king. Someone else is in charge. Someone else is ruling. And when you decide to stop running, you discover that God is not just a lifeguard to help you out when you're in trouble. But he's the one who made you for himself. He has a mission for you to accomplish. He's the one that loves you so much that he does not quit pursuing you. So when you decide to stop running from God, you need to rethink who God is because the very fact that you were running means that you weren't thinking of him properly. You didn't know him as he truly is. There's a second thing that we need to do when we stop running. We need to mute self. We need to mute self. In verse 4 of chapter 2, I want you to listen to this carefully. I think I'm going to read it in such a way it's very clear what's going on. Verse 4, he says, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The water surrounded me. Even to my soul, the deep closed around me, reeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple." Did you notice anything about the focus of Jonah's prayer? He says, I was drowning and I was dying. And he puts a lot of drama into that, doesn't he? And if it happened to you or me, we probably would too. But he puts a lot of drama into it. And then he says in verse 4, I will look again towards your holy temple. In verse 7, he says, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And here's what's happening. Here I'm in trouble and I'm dying, and I'm having this problem. I know what I'll do. I'm going to pray. And so I prayed. This is what I'm putting in my diary. I prayed. And my prayer was a success. I turned to the holy temple, and I prayed. And he heard me from his holy temple. And you want to know the secret of my success? It's this. When my soul fainted within me, verse 7, I remembered the Lord. Normally, writers in the Old Testament would say, the Lord remembered me. Who is he giving credit to? Jonah. In James chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Jonah was very, very, very proud. And all of us struggles with pride like that. Jonah had a tendency to tie God's love, not to the mercy of God, but to the merits of Jonah. 
what he had done, what he had accomplished, what he had deserved. Jonah seemed to believe that God rescued him because he had earned God's favor. He prayed the right prayer at the right time in the right way. And God loves people who do that, that deserve, they deserve his love. They have earned his love. Not only was Jonah's view of God too small, but his view of himself was way, way too large. Here's what he should have been praying. And this is uh, the diary entry I think Jonah would have added much later in his life. I was a drowning man. God had me where I couldn't run anymore. I cried for help knowing God could turn away from me at that moment and be fully right to do so. Especially after I had run from him and ignored him for so long. The amazing thing is this. God heard me and rescued me with this fish. Out of nowhere, when I thought my life was over, God sent this fish to swallow me up. Praise God for his mercy on me, a sinner. Praise God he heard my cry when he didn't have to. Isn't that wild? God's grace chased me down. It was a wild grace chase. If you want to stop running, self has got to go on mute. You've got to press the mute button on self. The attention has to go to him. We have to move from taking credit to giving praise to God. I have to move from being independent to being very dependent on him. I need to move from asserting myself to submitting myself. When um, we, had the, we had the grandson here part of this week, it was good. And uh, he's going to drop back by this evening. He, he loves his papa and his Gigi and his aunts and his uncles. But um, he rarely got unhappy that we discovered that with lots of kids in the house. Uh, kids don't have a chance to get unhappy because somebody's always there to entertain them. But, um, but he, uh, he occasionally would cry. And we always kind of knew what he wanted. That, that seemed to happen. I can still walk through a store today and hear a baby crying across the way. And I'm thinking, Mama, don't you know what they're asking for? I mean, you've got to speak the language, right? But there were times when we had our kids and we'd be driving the car and we had a, a baby in a car seat, sometimes two in car seats, and, and they would be crying and hollering. And there wouldn't be anything that we could do for them. You know, you don't, you, we talk to babies like they can understand stuff like be quiet. They, they, they don't. So one of the techniques that, that I had developed at one point is when they were really hollering, crying, top of their voice, I'd say, I'd, I'd try to make a noise louder than them. And when I couldn't do that, I'd turn on the radio and I'd turn up, I'd turn up really loud. Now, this isn't child abuse. Don't call anybody on me, okay? But I'd turn the music up really loud. Whoa! You know, loud music. And they'd go. And they'd quiet down. And they started getting loud again. Uh, I turned that music up again. It's louder than them. And you know, when a kid can't be louder than something else, he, he stops. Just tip for the day, parenting tip for the day. <laughs> the 
And when we talk about muting self, that's what, that's what has to happen. Our preoccupation with the Lord has to be much greater than our preoccupation with ourself. What he has done has to fascinate us, capture us, occupy our thoughts more than ourselves. We have to mute self when we stop running and turn back to God. Self got you into the mess. Self is not going to get you out of the mess. We have to mute self. Number three, we need to rethink who God is. We need to mute self. And then you need to ask, why was I running? Why was I running? Now, I rarely give opinions about what the Bible says, what it means. But here's my personal belief about Jonah. I not only believe that he was a historical figure, but that he came back and wrote this himself. I truly believe he was the author. Now, there are a lot of Bible scholars that would argue with that and say it was written much later. His story was handed down, handed down, handed down. But, but I really believe that Jonah put this down himself. He, he, the story, we don't see this at the end of the book. And if you want to read ahead, you can do that. But you don't see Jonah really kind of getting his act together at the end of the book. And so for him to write this later, he obviously had to kind of pull some things together later in his life. And he comes back, and I believe he writes this book. Now, when he wrote this book, the, the next couple verses that we're going to look at, he, he describes in the belly of the fish his response or his reaction to being swallowed and what he's going to do differently. And what he says, he talks about people who worship idols at this point. And, and then he contrasts people who worship idols with his own behavior, and with his own actions. It's kind of wild, but that's what he's doing. And, and so we know as the reader that the mariners, the seamen on the ship, were not ordinary idol worshipers at the end of, the, of their story. I mean, when they're finished in the story, some remarkable things happen to those men. They have turned. They have changed. They are different men. And I believe that if Jonah wrote this book, that later in life he had to come back and he had to somehow interact with those guys to get the rest of the story. Somebody did. Because at the time that Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he didn't know the backstory of the mariners. He didn't know what had happened to them. He didn't know how they had changed. And so I want to call your attention, before we read verse 8, I want you to go back into chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And I want you to see who he's talking about. And this will make sense in just a moment. Just hang with me, and, um, and I believe this will make sense. Jonah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here's the backstory of the mariners. These were the idol worshipers at one point. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. It was so dramatic. I mean, it was sudden. It was just like when Jesus told the storm to shut up and to stop, and it did exactly that. It stopped, and, it, and the sea went calm. Verse 16, chapter 1, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. If you've got your print Bible and you like writing in it, I would circle the word sacrifice. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. I would circle the word vows. Okay? Now, now let's go to, to verse 8 of chapter 2. You've seen how those men responded. Now let's go to chapter 2, verse 8. Jonah says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Who do you think he's talking to? About. 
the mariners. This will be more clear in just a moment. But he's talking about the seamen. They are forsaking the mercy of God, the chesed love of God, the loyal, faithful love of God uh, by worshiping or regarding their idols. Verse 9, but I will, here it comes, sacrifice to you, I'd circle the word sacrifice, to you with the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. There's the word vowed, I would circle that. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. And by the way, vomit in scripture is nowhere treated in positive light, either in the Bible or out of the Bible. And I think that there was a point being made that the prophet is expelled by a vomiting action of the fish. But here's what I want you to see. He contrasts the mariners with himself in this verse 9. Um, he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I'm giving you thanks. They're not. I'm, I'm sacrificing something. They're not. Um, I will pay what I have vowed, he says in verse 9. We don't know what the vow is. Some scholars assume he's saying, now I'm going to, I promise you I'm going to do what you told me to do. That's not the vow. I know that's not what he's promising God. He's not re-upped. He's not said, okay, God, you told me to go to Nineveh. Now I'm going to do it. He's not saying that with the vows. Why do I know that? Because we'll see next week that God has to tell him again to go to Nineveh. So he's made some kind of promises, and, and making vows and sacrifices was a way of worshiping God and showing your devotion to God. But in Jonah's case, he's contrasting himself with the mariners that threw him overboard, who we discover had actually also made vows, and they had made sacrifices, and, and with a difference, they feared the Lord exceedingly, it says in the text. Nowhere does it say that Jonah feared the Lord. Jonah has no idea what's happened to the mariners, but he believes that he is superior to those men. Even though they made sacrifices, they made vows, and they feared the Lord. When you are ready, any of us, to stop running, it is absolutely right that you and I should come to the Lord and confess our sin. And to confess in the Old Testament and the New has the idea, particularly in the New, of agreeing with God. What, what God has said about my behavior, when I agree with him, I'm confessing my sin. I'm agreeing with God. Yes, God, that is sin. And you and I should do that when we are wrong. But Jonah's a pretty shallow guy to be in such deep trouble. In verse 3 uh, uh, of chapter 2, he said, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. But he never asked why. When you're reading along, if you're the reader, you come along, why? Why was he there? Why was I drowning? He never asked that. Why was I in trouble in the first place? What, what did I do wrong? He never asked those questions. Not only that, but he never confessed his sin. He never expressed sorrow for sin in this passage of Scripture. He never said he was wrong. He stopped running. But Jonah was not yet changing. And when you and I find ourselves in a place where we sin and we say, Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. Lord, please forgive me. Forgive my sin. I want you to know that when you come and you confess your sin to God and you ask him to forgive you, he will always forgive you. 
It is the nature of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He will always forgive you. His forgiveness of you is not based on the quality of your confession. It's not based on the depth of your attitude or your mindset. If you come to God, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. He always does that. But if you find yourself confessing a sin and then doing it again and again and again and again and again, you're not changing, are you? You're not changing. And you say, Pastor, what's wrong? When that happens to me, when that happens to us, what's happened? Why do I keep doing it over and over and over and over again? There's something that's not happening that should be happening. And I'm going to use the Bible word for this. It's called repentance. And because we are only repenting in a partial way, we are not repenting deeply. We are not, it is partial, it is superficial. Then we are apt to do it again. The idea of repentance, the basic core idea of repentance is to turn around. Remember what Jesus said, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It means to turn around. And it means to turn around particularly to God. It's repentance towards God. And as I repent, I'm turning away from myself and I'm turning to him. And the nature of repentance is that repentance goes down and identifies those parts of my soul, those parts of my mind, those parts of my life that, I, that have not turned to God that are turned to something else and worshiping something else and obeying something else and submitting to something else. Repentance finds out what else we're doing. It finds out the core pieces of idolatry that are still scattered in our soul. Repentance goes down and stops that, addresses that. We have made a God sometimes out of our own pleasure, out of our own desires, out of ourselves. And I may confess a sin, but if I don't repent of that sin, go deep and uncover what part of me is still not turning to God, I'm going to do it again. You may have noticed the tree on the platform. I didn't know we were going to put it right here, but this is great. Okay? This is great. I'm going to put this, bring this tree over here. Now this is, imagine this, okay, this is an apple tree, sort of. Right? It's an apple tree, and there's, there's apples in here, in the tree. You can see, all right? Now, here's, here's what happens when you and I confess sin, but we don't bother or take the time to repent. We, um, we, we see what we have done. Oh, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And we feel remorse for our action. We, we, we sense that. And it's real. It's real. And so we confess of our sin. And so we go over here. Here's the action represented. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, here we go. By the fruit. And what we're doing is we're taking this that is my life, and, and I have borne this fruit of sin in my life, and I'm taking this, and I'm saying, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. And it's the fruit. The problem is, if, have I, if this is an apple tree, and it's the way I'm wired, this is kind of like me, if I just deal with the fruit, is it going to stop producing apples? No. It's going to keep producing apples, isn't it? I haven't dealt with the, the thing that produces the apple in my life. And so I've got to go deeper. I've got to somehow find the root of the sin. 
I've got to address with repentance that root that keeps coming back again and saying, God, I'm sorry, I did it again. You know, if I could repent fully, I wouldn't keep doing it again. And none of us fully repents, none of us fully gets there, but the nature of repentance is that we go not just with dealing with our actions, but what were the attitudes, what was, the, what was going on inside of me that caused me to do that? Now I've got to move this back or the people over there won't see me anymore. Not that that would be a loss, but here we go, okay. Let me give you an example. Let's say I lie to you, and I come to you and I say, I'm sorry I lied. And you say, Don, I, I forgive you. And then I lie to you again, and you catch me in it. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I lied to you. Now, why am I lying again? You know, everybody may be a little different in this, but this is just an illustration, just an example. Why do I keep lying to you? Well, if I do differently than Jonah, I start asking questions. Why am I here? Why am I in trouble? Uh, why am I doing these things? And I go a little deeper. Why am I lying? Well, I'm lying because I don't want you to know the truth about me. I don't want you to know the truth. And so I'm hiding something from you. And I, why do I do that? Because I want your approval. I want you to like me. I want you to approve of me. Take it a little bit deeper. And if, as I'm trying to repent of this sin of lying, I go a little bit deeper. I say, okay, if I'm seeking their approval, what have I done with their approval? When God says he doesn't want me to lie, and I keep lying because I care about your approval, what am I doing? I'm putting your approval in a place of God's approval. I've made an idol out of your approval. I care about the approval of men and women and others and everybody around me, and I'm trying to get your approval, and so I'm lying. And once I understand that I've made an idol out of your approval, well, now I can, I can begin to do business, and I can, I can begin to see what I've been doing to God, what I've been doing to my relationship with him, how I have offended him by lying to you. Lying is just the fruit. My desire for approval of others is the root. Jonah not only needed to confess his sin, which he didn't do, but he needed to know the answer to this question, why am I running? He needed the answer to that. Because although Jonah stops running on the outside in chapter 2, he has stopped running. <laughs> he doesn't have a choice. He's in the belly of the fish. He, he can't run anymore. He has stopped running on the outside. He has not stopped running on the inside. And we'll see this in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. He still has an attitude that doesn't want to go to Nineveh, that doesn't want to preach good news to them, that, that gets unhappy when they repent and when they turn. He has a bad attitude towards these people. There's something wrong with him. He's not running on the outside but he's still running on the inside. He's never asked the question, why am I running? His running is the fruit of something going on inside of him. And then chapters 3 and 4, his resistance to the will of God, his resistance to the love of God is also fruit. But there's something deeper going on inside of him. Here's how it might have worked. I've got a new diary entry. I prayed to God and said, I'm so sorry that I ran. Please forgive me, Father. But God, why did I run from you? Please show me, Lord. Why did this happen? I ran, and that was wrong. But why did I run? 
You see, it's, it's good to ask God to show you the answer to that question. What's the root, Lord? In the New Testament, we read descriptions of how God grants repentance to people. He helps us see what's going on. He could have prayed that. Then God said, that's a great question. Let's start there. Why did you run, Jonah? And I said, I didn't want to do what you were telling me to do, God. But why didn't you want to do my will, Jonah? Because I didn't want to tell those people about their need to repent, about their need for you, God. Why wouldn't you want me to tell those people, as you called them, about me? Jonah, they don't deserve your forgiveness. They are bad people. They deserve punishment. God, don't you need my forgiveness as badly as they do, Jonah? Jonah, I'm not like them. I'm better than that. And God says, I think you can answer the question now. Why did you run? You ran because you were proud, Jonah. You have decided that you can judge people better than I can because you think you are better than they are. I'd like to ask you now to kindly get off of my throne and let me make those decisions. The fruit was running, but the root was pride. Not thinking that I am just the same as those people. That I'm really no better than anybody else. Here's the bottom line. True repentance regrets and feels remorse for the fruit of sin, but it also exposes and digs up the root of sin. Are you running? I don't know anything more crushing to the human spirit than to resist in the fight against God. He made you for himself. And when you and I stop running, when anyone stops running, and we come to him, as you and I draw near to holy God, and we are, we are serious about that. We are going to find the capacity to confess. We're going to see what we have done. We've seen the damage and the pain it's caused ourselves or other people. How it's wounded the very heart of God. And we will confess it. We'll agree with God. And then the process of repentance is part of salvation. When I realize I can't run my life, I'm not supposed to run my life, and everything I've done to run my life has only messed up my life. And I turn to God and I say, Lord, you are the king. You are the one who's to be in control of me. You made me for yourself. And we repent, we turn. But that repentance is a lifelong journey. You don't repent just once and you're done. Repentance is part of being a believer in Christ. Repentance is married to faith so tightly. That every time I trust God, I'm turning away from trusting something else. And so repentance is that thing, that's gracious gift of God. It's a tool that you and I can ask for, that we can exercise, that we can use to go deeper than just what we have done. 
to try to understand what part of me is still in rebellion, what part of me is still worshiping something else, love something else more than Him. And then, when we quit running, we have the opportunity to embrace our calling and what God made us for. You're put on this earth for a reason. You have a mission to fulfill. It wasn't just to have a job and earn money for retirement and then to retire. You were here for much more than that. You were here for his purpose to have a life, an abundant life, but also this incredible mission to tell others about the love of God that you have experienced. And he wants to send you. And just like Jonah was called, every person here is called. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your love that does not give up on us and always pursues us. Father, I pray for that dear one this morning who is beginning to see that in their life. They're seeing the circumstantial events that are happening to them not as just accidents of fate, but they're beginning to see your hand actively involved in their life. I pray for that dear one, Lord, who is struggling, who is grasping, who is longing for a real life that today, this morning, for that person, they may come to you and surrender and yield and receive your forgiveness and your grace. I thank you, Lord, that there are dear ones that we have prayed for and that we are praying for that you are pursuing this morning even beyond the walls of this auditorium. We pray for them, not just in our response time, but today, wherever they are, that they might hear you and hear your love for them. Father, as we respond to you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come, apply the truth to our hearts, drive away the darkness, crush the lies with truth set us free. We pray it in Jesus' name.